0: harvest. It is uh, week 25 on our bus tour through the land of Revelation and as your tour guide I just kind of want to ask are you doing okay? Are you uh, on the bus tour? Are you hanging in there? Are you uh, 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 staying comfortable in the bus? Are you uh, getting along together? Are you excited about the tour? Everybody doing okay? Awesome. Well, we have a wonderful Lord who uh, is holy and over it all, and that's, uh, that's ultimately what this is about. Well, today, or to date, our focus has been about laying out the pieces of the book of Revelation. And we've been going site by site, chapter by chapter, laying out those pieces. And it's been, as I've talked, it's not been a timeline assembly process to date so far. Uh, that means I've not really purposely focused in on timeline talks uh, that often come along with the book of Revelation. Uh, we've just been laying out the pieces of the book. And I want for you to know that I'm not anti timeline talk within the book of Revelation. Uh, not so at all. But um, I will say that so often the timeline conversations of Revelation, like Revelation, so what's happening next? That kind of stuff. Uh, so often ends up getting about kind of almost, I would say, a me-centered time thing, like give me the app for the end-time plan, God, type of a thing, so I can just insert that in my calendar. And sometimes that gets so the focus that, honestly, we kind of end up, I'll use the terminology, we end up kind of putting Jesus Christ in the compartment baggage area of the bus, And uh, that's not the case in it. And yet, I want for you to know, I'm not anti-timeline talk at all. I think it can be fun. I think it can be enjoyable and very, very intriguing. And and, uh, uh, certainly, Revelation talks about things. But in it, uh, this has been about laying out the pieces uh, through Revelation chapter 20. But now today, we are going to enter into some timeline talk assembly, if you will. Uh, We're going to have two Sundays On timeline talk, Pastor Doug, only two? Uh, Well, yes and no. Yes, only two. No, we've actually had 25 weeks that are a part of assembly, okay? And I think we need to think of it that way. Uh, Let me kind of go. When you assemble something of great value, what are the processes? I'd say there's three, the first step in the assembly process is, uh, is kind of laying out the pieces of that. The thoughtful, careful laying it out. It's not like you just take something and dump it out, you know, like blocks and just start going at it. But we're talking about something of grand value. You take it out carefully, you lay the pieces. I've used the picture in the past of an airplane kit. All the pieces laid out, you do that carefully, you lay the pieces out. Then the second step of assembly, I would say, is actually after you have those valuable pieces all laid out, you actually step back and you consider and decipher your approach. Now that I have it laid out, now what do I do? Because I would say how you approach something is very critical. For example, single guys. How you approach a single lady to ask her out on a date is critical. Actually, single ladies, true? True, okay. You're too shy. Uh, true. Okay, let's relate it into this. We're kind of in that relationship realm. I've heard it said that 90% of a powerful kiss is the approach. Okay? And the approach is critical. We could say that how you approach a lion is critical. How you approach the IRS is critical. How you approach your boss is Is critical. And I don't know, maybe it's the same approach for all three. Uh, I kind (laughs) of hope not there. Uh, How you approach a newborn child is critical, or your spouse is critical. How we approach one another, how we approach the Lord is critical. How we approach a book of the Bible is critical. It's critical. So, step one, thoughtful laying out the pieces. Step two, deciphering your approach. Step three is the assembly. Uh, put it together. And yet how you assemble it is driven by the prior two issues. Well, let me bring another uh, illustration. Karen and I have been uh, working on a puzzle. Does this make us dorks? Okay. We, we, we've been working on a puzzle. I got this puzzle. Okay. This, is this sounds any more manly? I got it at uh, uh, Cabela's. All right. A little bit more manly in it. I got a puzzle and we're like, we're putting a puzzle together. We need to have some relaxed mental time and just hanging together. And I don't know if it's relaxing or not, but times putting a puzzle together, it's pretty complex. But anyway, okay, so the thing of putting a puzzle together, well, what happens? Well, we started by laying out the pieces on our dining room table. And, and by the way, it's not like we just took the box and like threw it and then like go at it. No, no, you you put it out and you start uh, getting the pieces laid, turned over and all so they're not on top of each other and kind of laid out. You you get the pieces laid out. Now with something valuable, you would do it much carefully and much more thoughtfully, but with a puzzle we do that. And then you determine your approach with maybe without even thinking about it. And what is generally the approach? You do the corners and the edge and you put that together and now you have a framework to work within. And then, really, what starts happening is you assemble the booger. You start getting the pieces and organizing them by colors and shapes, and you kind of, the ones that really are easy, and then you leave, actually, the whole areas there that are undone. Those are, like, the areas where they all look the same, and you save it to last, but you wean it down to the remaining pieces, and the puzzle's all done, by the way. If you want to come on over and take a look at it, it's really cool. (laughs) We finished it last night. We did. So... uh, In that, that's what happens, all right? All of that to say this, uh, today is step number two. Today is this considering the approach and the framework. Actually, it's considering the approaches and the frameworks about the book of Revelation. I would say this, I would kind of in the terminology, most tours through the land of Revelation are tell-you tours, They're kind of like, here's the approach, it's already determined, here's the framework, it's already determined, and now we're going to put it together and we're going to tell you how this happens. Um, The puzzle frame is already there and you're just jumping in and they're kind of telling you, guiding you in that kind of a way. I want to make a reference to last Sunday with our All Sunday Family Chat last Sunday and I mentioned that this church is all about raising disciple makers. And I'll just say it in the context of today, not just disciples but disciple-makers. And in that, I made mention about how that includes equipping disciples of Christ to be increasingly equipped with God's word. And so, therefore, as a result of that, this has not been a me-telling-you-what-revelation-says kind of tour. That's not been my objective in it. Actually, my objective in this is to engage you in the process. I'll just tell you straight up from the very beginning, my number one purpose was that we would leave this series seeing Jesus bigger and more and more amazing. My number two objective was to further equip us as a church to be better skilled students of God's word and how to study it. That's huge for me in this. As a young church and as a growing church, I've wanted you in on step one of laying out the pieces of it, and I've gone about it in that way, and today I want you in on step two of the considering the approaches and the frameworks on how the book is interpreted, okay? So I'm going to tell you, today is a bit like a class today, okay? And in fact, right now, if you could, turn your Bibles to the contents, page. I mean that seriously. Turn to the contents page. I'll make reference here in just a second. By the way, next Sunday is going to be kind of uh, uh, the assembly, and it's just straight up, it's going to kind of be what I think so far the book of Revelation uh, has been laying out in a timeline, and that's kind of next Sunday. So in the context page, are you there? Okay, in the context, look in the Old Testament for the book of Ezra. Take a look at the page, and then go to that page. Go to the book of Ezra. And then look for Ezra chapter seven, verse 10. Okay, this is just a way to prevent people from going, I know where it is. I really don't, but I'm just gonna try and find it and act so the person next to me thinks I know where it is. Okay, it's just Ezra chapter seven, uh, verse 10. Um, we're all learning uh, our Bibles and uh, how to get around in them. Ezra chapter seven, verse 10. I wanna begin with this verse. Uh, tells about this man, Ezra. And it says, for Ezra had set his heart. It was a purposed thing. Had set his heart to study the law of the Lord. What a mindset there. He set his heart that he was gonna be a man that studied God's word, but not only study it and to do it, and not only to do it, but to teach it. Too often times today, people think that of Christ, disciples of Christ think that a disciple is I study it and I do it. No, no, no. A disciple of Christ is studying it, doing it, and then reproducing in the lives of others. That's what disciple-making is, and that's what a real, and Ezra was that kind of a disciple, and I bring that to the forefront today because much of what we're talking about, oh, it's, it's so burdening me because we're not going to be in a biblical text today digging it out, and you know here at this church that that's the norm for us. If you're visiting with us, this is not the norm right now. But, but I need to tell you that to be Ezra-like individuals, to be people who study the law of the Lord, sometimes we kind of have to take a step out of the actual text and grow in our understanding of how to work in the text. Okay, so today is not so much uh, an exegesis of a particular text as it is. How do we become better students of God's word in understanding the approaches and frameworks as it has to do with revelation? That's where we're going today. By the way, I also wanna add to it. uh, Acts 17, verse 11, the Bereans were known to be people who were to take it home after what they heard Paul say, take it home and study it out to see if it's right. And I want to raise people like that, who are not tell me what it is people, but are I want to dig into it kind of people to be a disciple and an increasing disciple maker. So today, that's where we're going. Uh, The approaches and the frameworks are centered around three questions in our time today. And the questions are, what am I approaching? What are the major approaches, uh, interpretive frameworks? And third, what is behind those interpretive frameworks? So let's go. Class begins And uh, this is kind of how it's coming out. What am I approaching, all right? When you pick up your Bible and you go to Revelation, there's a question that has to go through your mind. What am I approaching? Now, in that... Uh, that question contains the core questions of theologically biblical inspiration, canonicity, and preservation. In other words, am I going to an inspired word of God, God, God-breathed, God-source, God's word, thus says the Lord, is it inspired, God-breathed? Uh, inspiration, canon. Is it part of the biblical canon of Scripture, the 66 books? Should it be a part of that? And preservation. How do I know that what we really have is what was written down? Now, I want to make reference to you of some resources on this because, my goodness, those are three Sundays for sure right there. Uh, let me make uh, notes. I've got a few of these on your uh, in your sermon notes page at the bottom. Number one, James MacDonald book, God Wrote a Book. Uh, I think this is one of the best, easy to read, understandable, short, concise, get at it. How do I know if my Bible is really God's word and such? Really, if you haven't read it, you need to read it, Uh, God wrote a book. The second one is called Truth Matters by Andreas Kostenberger and a couple others. This is actually a book that uh, Karen and I last year and will be this year again, uh, high school seniors, be giving to you as you graduate from high school. In here, chapter three contains a chapter called, let's make a Bible, who picked these books and where did they come from? And it's helping you understand, so how do I know that this is really what they wrote and where it got from? Another one I wanna make reference to you is because this area is something of grand interest to me back in my seminary days in 2000. I wrote a paper for a class called Historical Transmission of the Greek New Testament Manuscripts. It's got the link on there. You can go to that. You can pull it and take a look at that. And maybe it's got a little bit more detail on people and so forth with it. You can do that. The killer wonder of all books related to this topic has to do with Josh McDowell, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Uh, He actually went into researching uh, who Jesus Christ is, is he divinity, and uh, essentially God's word. He went in to deny it, and he came out kind of like a Lee Strobel situation with his books. He came out of it saying, I can't deny it, he is who he is, and he is now a clear follower of Christ. And the book is stunning, uh, quite deep. Quite detailed. Uh, you want to read that. But this is what am I approaching? You need to understand it. And the reason I'm talking about this is because Revelation is one of those books in the Bible that raises that question. How do we know what this is? Okay? So, number one, there's two options. Number one, it's God's written word. That's what I believe. That's what this church believes. That, that when we read it, it is looking at it, it is, it is an a thus says the Lord kind of a thing. It's God's word, and therefore God's word shapes my thinking. My thinking does not shape it. By the way, at the end today, that's going to be a very big theme, kind of coming out of this. Uh, Revelation is one of the 27 New Testament-inspired and preserved books of the script of the New Testament, one of the 66, uh, same of the entire Bible, Uh, The other option is that this is not God's word, that it's man's word. It's man-sourced, okay? It's man-breathed, kind of like this. It comes from a few different angles. One is some see Revelation as an ancient writing that's uniquely telling the realities in the day of Nero or Domitian or other leaders of the day. And they read through and go, this is just a creative history story at the time. It's not biblical scripture, it's a historical book is one of the angles on it. And they'll say, look at all the familiarities or similarities with Domitian and all of that, but it should not be biblical canon. Or another one is looking at it from the same side of kind of going, it's really, it's a Pilgrim's Progress kind of a book. It's a Lord of the Rings book. It's a very uh, image-driven thing that has good religious principles about it, but, but it's not God-sourced word. Or another is, is uh, you, by the way, you can find them all online. Oh, what a cesspool of information sometimes. Uh, um, or you can find on it that, that some will say Revelation is actually heretical, uh, because of, they would say it teaches false truths compared with other truths of the, in the scripture, which I completely do not agree with, or the fact that it claims that it's from God and they would say that it is not. Therefore, it is heretical. Uh, so it's either God's word or man's word, all right? Uh, I'm going to make reference to this as to what's behind the man's word thing here at the very end today. So, what am I approaching? God's word? A creative religious story? A heresy? I'll tell you, it matters. It matters what you understand. By the way, in that, what I am approaching includes the type of genre. When you open the paper this morning or clicked on the paper this morning and look at that, that's different than a phone book. There aren't even phone books like anymore. That's different than a, than a novel, which is different than sci-fi, which is every literary genre you enter, knowing it or not, with an understanding of interpretation. And one of the unique things about Revelation that we talked about in the beginning is Revelation 1.1, the apocalypsis of Jesus Christ. It's apocalyptic literature, and that means uh, just the the genre of back in that day, it was talking about end times, it was graphic. By the way, uh, apocalyptic literature back in the day, the imagery was not exaggerating things. Actually, the imagery was understating it. It was attempting to describe it, but generally it was understood. It was bigger than the imagery in it all, but it's apocalyptic. Uh, Also, Revelation 1.3, it says it's prophecy. It's divine proclamation and or uh, prediction. It's to be understood in its original historical context of the day, not ours today, but in that context of today. And by the way, biblical prophecy oftentimes, Psalm 22, if you will, uh, oftentimes has a, 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 a dual reality to it, an initial implication at the time and a later prophetic reality. Psalm 22, David is writing about what's going on in his life. Psalm 22 ultimately tells about what Christ's going to the cross. Okay? And, and that's very common with biblical literature of this type. And I would add to Revelation 111, it's it's epistolary. In other words, it's an epistle-like. It's an occasional letter. It's written to real people with real situations going on in their day. And it was meant, this is where this is big. It was written to people meant to be understood. It was written to real people meant to be understood. And what I'm going to be talking about here in a little bit, sometimes we've just cluttered it all up. Uh, in the process of it. Uh, I'm gonna add, I think also narrative is just flowing through it. It's telling a story of how this comes together. So what are we approaching? We're approaching God's inspired word. Or, um, I, we believe that is preserved written word in a unique uh, literary genre. And that means though that we can't, as we've talked earlier, we can't guernica it. We can't just make it mean whatever we want. This is God's word, and we're seeking to understand what God said in that time. Question one, done. Question two, what are the most common approaches to the book of Revelation? I'm going to grab the the four most common ones here. Doing okay, class? If you're new, you're like, whoa, this is like different church. Okay, Um, all right, four approaches. First, the preterist. The Preterist sees the book of Revelation as telling, in my own kind of categories here, telling a past story. Uh, It sees the events of Revelation as symbolic and largely fulfilled in 70 AD with the fall of the temple in Jerusalem. In other words, Revelation is telling the story about them. Some Preterists would also include a 5th century fall of Rome in it, uh, but Revelation tells a historical past story. Full preterism, full preterism sees all the events of revelation occurring in the first or the combination of the first and fifth century. Therefore, the full preterist would actually say, we live in the eternal state right now. I want my money back. I'm sorry, I wasn't going to go after people with it. Um, uh, But I would say full preterism essentially is saying that there's no second return of Christ And a real problem with that, because that's a pen issue. And I would actually say that's heresy, that there is no second return of Christ. Partial preterism would see the events really of Revelations chapters 1 through 19 as all have taken place back in 70 AD, right in that time period with the fall of the temple in Jerusalem. And would see Revelations 20, 21 and 22 as yet future uh, in that yet to come. Uh, preterists see the purpose of revelation as written to comfort and strengthen Christians in, in John's day who were suffering persecution from the imperial cult, from Judaism, and as well to prepare them for a coming fundamental reorientation in the course of redemptive history, which most preterists say happened after the time of 70 AD with that. So the preterist would see uh, the, the, the value of the book of Revelation more like a New Testament epistle. It's all about stuff that happened back then. But it has implication, application for us today in learning about God and so forth with that. But they would not see it as having direct relation to us. Uh, their interpretive fra- framework would be allegorical. Now three out of the four would have an allegorical framework. What does that mean? I'm glad you asked means that the figures and the symbols and the illustrations really in Revelation have a meaning beyond the imagery of themselves by representing a bigger spiritual meaning. Uh, All imagery then is seen first as symbolic unless it's told in the text, unless it's told that it's that's what it is, essentially. It's first symbolic. So the 144,000 that are talked about are not an actual 144,000, but that is a spiritual meaning behind it with the numbers of it. The two witnesses that we saw earlier in Revelation, uh, they represent something more than two actual witness evangelists. They, they, they are something more than that. The 1260 days, the 42 months, the three and a half years are not actual days, months, years, but are figurative. And that's why the thousand years in chapter 20 is not an actual thousand years. It's viewed as a, 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 a spiritual numeric of a lot of time with that. So this framework, allegory, carries into the next three uh, that you'll be seeing here. Uh, Preterist place the writing of Revelation between 54 and 68 AD. That's interesting. Why would they do that? What's going on here? I'll talk about that at the very end, bringing this all together, hopefully, Lord willing. But I'll just say this. In it, I'm picking up That with preterists, that there is something behind, something undergirding, the reason why they look at it this way. We're going to talk about that here in a bit. Secondly, the historicist not many of these today, but they would see the book of Revelation as telling, I'm going to call it a panoramic story of history. It sees Revelation as giving a prophetic panorama of the course of history, of the course of church history, or mainly Western history, and in John's time, from John's time through the end of the age. It's kind of like, read the book of Revelation and you'll see the puzzle pieces of history from John's day up to ours and whenever the end time comes. Some historicists see Revelation 2, chapters 2 through 19 as telling the story Uh, Some historicists have seen Revelation telling the story like chapters 1 through 3 tell the seven periods of church history, 4 through 7 symbolize the fall of Rome, 8 through 10. The trumpet judgment represents the invasion of the Roman Empire or the invasions on the Roman Empire, 11 through 13. The, true, uh, the church's struggle with the Roman Catholicism and on and on. It's basically, it's laid out to where you could just look back and see history is told in this imagery through the book of Revelation. And that's why, like the preterist, the historicist uh, uses an allegorical framework to do that. The symbols, the illustrations are first uh, uh, spiritual meanings beyond themselves they're not actually as they, as they appear right there. I'm just going to note this because I think it's interesting for later on here. Uh, uh, well-known leaders like Wycliffe and Knox and Tyndale and Luther and Calvin and Wesley and Edwards and Spurgeon were known to embrace historicism. Why might that be? Uh, they're in an interesting time of history called the Protestant Reformation. Hmm. I wonder what's behind the view. We'll, we'll get there here in a little bit. Number three, the idealist view. Idealist. Sometimes it's called spiritualist. I don't like calling it that because they don't view everything as spiritualistic. Uh, there is some uh, plain reading in it, and so I think that can over-exaggerate. The idealist view, uh, this this, and really the fourth are probably the most predominant views on the book of Revelation. Uh, it, the book tells a present story, or after I uh, put, gave Chris the slides, I, I might Term it, it tells a timeless story. Uh, in other words, the idealist looks at the at revelation as presenting timeless spiritual truths of the struggle between God and Satan as played out in every age. It's not a timeline. It, it, it's a, the truths of the battle, the war that's going on between God and Satan, good and evil. So Revelation is neither a historical record, like the Preterist or the Historicist, nor a predictive prophecy, mainly, uh, like the Futurist, the one we'll get to here in just a second. It sees Revelation communicating a series of kind of repeated symbolic pictures of the universal church's warfare from John's day to the second coming to the great white throne to the eternal state. The idealist sees the imagery of Re- Revelation as representing and presenting a timeless, always-present story for all church history past and all church history future, which applies to the universal church and in its time. The interpretive framework for the idealist is also allegorical, that you first approach it, the symbols have meanings beyond what they are here. The idealist interpretive view became the po- Predominant interpretive framework for revelation after origin. Uh, he died in uh, 254 AD. Uh, in that period, why would this become idealistic view become a more and more popular view? I'm gonna talk about that here in just a little bit. Okay, you hanging with me? Okay. All right. Four, the futurist view. Book of Revelation is telling a future story sees revelation structure as fitting, Revelation chapter 1, verse 19, which says, Right, therefore, the things you have seen, to John is saying, the things you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place. Uh, big broad brush strokes. I mean, there's various camps within some of these, but I would say that uh, chapter 1 is what you have seen. Chapters 2 and 3, would, they would say, that, that's, that are the things that are. Chapters 2 and 3 with the seven churches at the time. Chapters four through twenty-two will take place. That's the future part of it. Uh, in it, the interpretive framework. I'm gonna. I'm calling it. I'm naming it the natural interpretation of the text. In other words, what's the natural, the plain meaning of the text? Uh, In other words, uh, where the allegorical view would say first see the symbols or first see the imagery as symbolic first unless it's told it's something exactly what it says or uh, the futurist uh, here in this natural interpretation would be more starting from the point of see it first as it says unless the text says it's something different. Okay, that's huge issue in this whole thing from your starting point. Are the imagery of revelation, are they, do you start symbolically or do you start, take them as they are unless the text tells you differently with those. Huge issue in all of that. And by the way, I'm just gonna say this. Really good people that love God, okay? And are saved and know Christ and all of that have both, okay? There are. Um, I think there's implications and uh, next week I'll be telling you where I'm at. Um, so they would look at it and kind of go, what's the historical, grammatical, contextual meaning? I want for you to know this because sometimes it's called the literal interpretation and that's why I'm not using symbolic view or literal interpretation view because in those, people often react and think, well, everything means it's the literal. Like in Revelation chapter five, when Jesus says that he's the lion and a lamb, when the text says he's a lion and a lamb, so literal means he's half lion, half lamb. No, he's not half lion, half lamb. In the flow of the context, it's understood within the grammar and the meaning and of text. Even the, the literalist or the, the natural interpretation would view symbols as well as the idealist would view that there are some things that are exactly what they say that they are. People just get too weird. Okay? Just chill on this sometimes of stuff. Uh, I would also say with the natural interpretation Revelation 12, when it says that Satan is a red dragon with seven heads. Listen to me, Satan is not a dragon with seven heads. It's using that imagery in there. Uh, Revelation 1, uh, seven lamps, seven stars, uh, tells it, it tells uh, that they, what they are uh, in that. Revelation uh, 20, the uh, natural interpretation would say that it is an actual thousand years. And 144,000 are actually 144,000 of 12,000 from each tribe of Israel. Okay, got the feel on that? What's behind that approach? Talk about that in just a second. Let me summarize it up, all right? Here's the sum. Four main views. One, the preterist. Revelation tells a past story. Allegorical, interpretive framework. Secondly, the historicist. The historicist sees Revelation telling a panoramic story of history, mainly Western history in an allegorical framework. Idealist would see Revelation as telling a present or a timeless story to the church. um, And it would be an allegorical interpretive framework. The futurist would say that the most of Revelation is speaking of something as was future to John in his day is yet still future to us in our day because those things have not happened and take a, a natural or plainer, quote, literal interpretation. Okay? Now... What's behind these approaches? Um, I have spent a lot of time with these boys and girls in this field. I mean that respectfully. With with these people that have different views. I want for you to know, and I don't say this in any kind of braggatory thing, but I'm now in the mid-5,000 pages of theological reading over this series. And that has included writings and readings from all four views. I want for you to know that. Because I went into this whole series, as I told you, it's time to take off some theological framework and let the text speak, okay? And uh, I have worked diligently and hard to do that. And I'm kind of worked up because, man, I'm tired of it. I have to tell you, it has been war, Just in it. And I don't mean war with them, war with some of them, but in it. And I have sought to genuinely hear them and to try and understand what's going on, to be sensitive to them, and try and genuinely learn what's happening here. This has been the most theologically grounding building time period for me, and I'm including, including all of seminary in how I've approached this whole thing. So with that, and because of kind of how I work, I think some things have risen to the top for me. And like, why do they believe this? Why do all of them? So I'm gonna get in everybody's face, all right, with this. Because I think there's something we can learn. This is the point. I'm not an angry guy, I hope not. I'm a learning guy. So let me, four things here, okay? And I don't have slides on these because I was working on these yesterday till late in the night. All right, number one. I am seeing a prevalent, what I'm going to call, a my theological hang-up issue. Number one, my theological hang-up issue. What do I mean by that? I think it's really prevalent in two viewpoints. One, I'm actually going to go with the, uh, what are we approaching? Is it God's word or man's word? And I'm going to talk here uh, just for a moment on those who see Revelation as a man-sourced. In other words, it's not Scripture. It's man-sourced. And I've seen and as I've read with this and understand, what's going on with your thinking with this? There's an underlying hang-up issue that's going on. And it always keeps coming back to that. I'm really, I think always keeps coming back to this. And it's this. I don't agree with what Revelation says about something. And generally, that comes back to God and his association with judgment in hell. I cannot see a loving God who would bring judgment and have an eternal hell or any kind of hell. And that, and, and I get that. Okay, I get that. And yet, in that, what happens is, in the hang up in the reading as I've been going through this, all of a sudden, what happens is, is this litany list of questions or historical pushbacks with Revelation begin happening, seeking to reject the book as canonical. For instance, the historical pushbacks often have gone like this. Well, the early church fathers like Dionysius, I'm going to hack these names, Uh, Dionysius or Eusebius or Cyril or Chrysostom and et cetera, they all questioned revelations, divine inspiration way back in the, the, the later second, third century, and it's true, they did. And another argument along with it, and Revelation was not in the canonical list at the Council of Laodicea in 360 AD, and that's true. Nor was it in certain lectionaries back in that day, nor was Revelation included in the Syriac Bible back in the day. And those are all true. And you read those things and you hear those things and you begin to think that's interesting. Maybe there were a whole pile of people in the very beginning who questioned Revelation's canonical inspiration uh, 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 as a book. But, But here's the thing I've come to see. Those arguments, they're selective history. They're arguing a preferred theological position by grabbing selective history. And I say that because while they're true, it's only half the historical story. Those historical pushbacks happened In the Eastern church scene, as history would talk about it. But not in the Western church scene. The Western church scene had basically accepted all of Revelation as fully inspired biblical canon through all of the time of the Eastern church's debate and struggle with it. And in it, the Eastern church's undergirding issue behind their fussing of seeking to make Revelation take it into extinction was that they disagreed with what was called an earthly eschatology. I'm not going to go there with it because it's not the issue. The point of the matter is that their hang-up issue was that they disagreed with something that Revelation said. They didn't like something, so they sought to grab, have grabbed the questions and the history that fits that bent. Okay, This is just me, Doug, as I've been learning for this, and this is what I'm seeing. With, with, that's with the man's source. I'm gonna bring in the preterist hang-up issue undergirding their approach is this, and it's understandable. Again, Revelation chapter one says, God gave him, John, to show the things that must soon take place. And the time is near, it says in there. Well, the preterist would say that the terminology that's used there, and there's some truth to this, that generally was referred to a generation or 40 years, some truth to that and I understand what they're saying. And listen, if it was supposed to happen within a generation, and it's been like how many years? 2,000. We would all go, "Mm, problem, right? So what do you do? So then you go back and you think there's a problem with this, hey look, Look at this, maybe it meant that all of the tragedy that happened in 70 AD with the destruction of the temple and everything that took place and and the desecration in the temple and maybe Revelation is doing that and then an entire system is built around that. And the entire system that's built around and then talked about is also built around the idea of now we have to prove that Revelation was not like most people say, who was written in 90, 95 A.D. It has to be written before 70 A.D. to make that happen. So then you have a huge argument going on to why it was written back in 58 to 68 A.D. And I'm just sitting back, I'm literally, I'm trying to learn in this and I'm sitting back and I'm going, your hang-up issue is driving your interpretation. And friends, there's something to learn from that. We can't be that. We can't do that. Scripture needs to speak. Secondly, what's behind the approaches. First, my hang-up issue. Secondly, my theological framework issue. This is actually, I would, I'm going to include a historicist, idealist, and even futurist in this. Historicist uh, view started with a monk, uh, Joachim of Fiora, I hacked that. In uh, the year 12002 on Easter night, he records that he received a vision from God revealing to him God's plans for the ages that was built in Revelation. So he got a dream. And so out of that dream, he got this telling how to understand the book of Revelation. And so he built out of it 1260 days in Revelation, prophesying Western history from the apostles' time on. And then the Franciscans carried on this view, applying it to Rome and the papacy because of the corruption in their day and age of the Catholic Church as Babylon. And his theological framework issue of I was given a divine dream drives how the book is seen. The idealist view. Idealist view has their theological framework thing is what would be commonly called replacement theology where uh, the, the I- Israel is no longer God. God does not have a special plan for Israel. That's the, the church has become grafted in with Israel and now we are one. There's a universal church. And so Israel is done. I'm gonna talk a little bit more about that in a second because it applies to the next, the next issue. So if there's no Israelite, Then, when Revelation Israel, when there's no uh, when there's no Israel, and Revelation has inferences regarding the people of Israel or Israelite terminology, what do you do with that? Well, an allegorical framework allows you to move it beyond. And I'm not trying to smack talk. That's just the reality of it. I'll even say I've seen it in, in futurists where they press the theology of the rapture into the text of Revelation. In chapter four, when John is taken up to the throne room, some commentators talk about how, see, that's the rapture. I'll just be straight up with you. It's really bad exegesis if you're building your point from that. It's just that's just the reality with that. And then there's, there's three, four other arguments. You know, there's the, the, the thing of, well, after chapter four, there's no more use of the Greek word for the church and so forth. And, and so they, that assumes that they're... Uh, okay, straight up. They're forcing the text with their argument. So Doug, do you not believe in a rapture? I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that. I'm saying this. I don't think Revelation pre- presents... A, enough information to build a view out of Revelation on it by itself. Thessalonians, Daniel, Ezekiel, other passages, it doesn't, okay? Don't stone me if you're um, I'm in that camp there. I'm trying to refrain myself on saying what I am. Okay? Uh, point is, in the theological framework, we have to be careful. That's all I'm trying to say here. Number three, there's a globe and news issue. A globe and news issues. Uh, the historicist view, it became very prominent with the Protestant reformers. Why? Because in their day and age, the news of the day and everything that was taking place with the Catholic Church, especially in that day and age, so much of Revelation fit into my newspaper. And historicism kind of got a, a renewing of the, how to view the book of Revelation. Luther, Calvin, all those in the reformers there. The idealist. Imagine this. You're at the end of the first century, and you look on your world globe. Assume you have one. That's up to date. And you spin the thing around. Does anyone have one of those in your home anymore? <laughs> Awesome. You spin that thing around. Everybody else is like, I don't even know what a globe is. You spin that thing around and look for Israel. There's no Israel on the world map. Now you go another hundred years. You spin it again. No Israel on the map. Go another hundred years. Spin the globe. No Israel on the map. And you look in Revelation, there's talk about 144,000 and 12,000 from the tribe of this. And there are no tribes. There is no Israel. And what do you do? Well, God must have a different plan. And Acts talks about how the Gentiles have been grafted in. And friends, I could talk a long time on this, but, but don't sell this one short. When there's no Israel on the map, and the Bible, if it talks that there's a, still yet a plan for Israel, what do you do? And then 1947 comes along. The globe issue. Uh, Last one, and we're done. My past influencers issue. I'm a Lutheran. I'm a Methodist. I'm a Baptist. I'm a Catholic. I'm non-denominational. My church, my denomination, my Bible college taught this. So that's what I am. My favorite pastor, teacher, author, radio teacher. They taught this and I trust them. Um, I want to lovingly say we should be hearing from people and we should be trusted, but you gotta know this. Good people differ on some of this. Some of this, I think, is really bad. Some of it is good people can differ. But if it's the kind of thing to where you're approaching and saying, well, well, I'm a, I am an idealist, I'm a futurist, here's my question, why? Ezra set his heart to study God's word. There's not a mama told me that, so that's what I do. No, 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 the Bereans left Paul's teaching to go back and to consider whether what Paul taught out of the Bible, if you will, was really true or not. That kind of people, that kind of people. And by the way, in that, that allows some room for people to have some differing views, okay? Because a lot of this is what I would call pencil issues, not pen issues, Second coming of Christ, pen issue. Okay? But I think we need to have some real clear integrity on thinking through what's going on. And I will promise you, because I've been wrestling with it for 25 weeks, every week, wrestling with, that's what Dr. Arp said, and that's what Dr. Stollard said, and I love those guys. But was their hang up issue driving them? Or was a the theological framework having to force revelation? Or, or is it kind of grabbing things out of the, the, the news thing that was dry? Or, or was it what that's what they grew up with? We want to be students of God's word and not alone. Okay? and not alone students of God's word, but together students of God's word. So I've sought today to be very transparent, very class-like with you today. So much of this is sharing the last 25 weeks of what I've been every week working through and working at. And I hope in this, it equips you to get more excited about God's word, not less. Do not fear it. But do be wise. Because I need to remind us of a passage. Revelation 22, verses 18 and 19 says this. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. Hey, I believe that's God's word. And I believe that God is saying, be very, very careful. We enter it seeking what God has to say. This shapes our theological framework not my preference, and not yours. Amen. Okay? Next Sunday, I'm gonna share with you what I think. And then we're gonna get back to the text. Can't wait. By the way, tour guides don't like the bus parked. Tour guides like to move the tour. And I'm looking forward to after next Sunday to get the tour moving back in chapter 21. Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you by the fa- for the fact that you, the creator, the sustainer, the Lord of all things, you are the one that has put everything here and into place. And God, what's so cool about it is you don't sit there on the throne, uh, nervous, wondering, fussing over the issues or the frameworks or the viewpoints and wondering yourself, which is right, and which is wrong. You know exactly what's gonna happen. And yet in it, you have given us your word. And you have given us your word to grow and understand and understanding you. And even in this, the whole book of Revelation is that we would see Jesus Christ more. Ultimately, that we would be increasing conquerors for you because of what you have done, what you will do, and who you are in it. Oh God, I pray that this, rather than bringing these theological stumbling blocks, may we talk it, may we discuss it, may we even push back on each other, that's sharpening each other, but oh God, I pray in it, we would not miss you. Because I do believe You are coming back. And I would not be surprised if it is very soon. And yet, Lord, whenever that time is, may we be a church. May we be a people. May your universal church be a people lifts you high, that welcomes you with joy. You're coming. And I vote game on. In your name we pray. Amen.